the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. China has stopped reporting their COVID case numbers. We don't have statistics. China stopped reporting statistics on daily infections and on deaths. Border crisis in El Paso reaching breaking point as the Biden administration erects a tent city to house migrants. In many ways, this is the best possible scenario for the Biden administration. Politicians demand answers from Pete Buttigieg over the chaos surrounding Southwest Airlines. New York's attorney general may have seen this coming before the feds did. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast, your first look at today's top stories for Friday, December 30th. I'm Jim Barto. A growing number of countries are alleging that China is not forthcoming about their COVID numbers since it first surfaced in the country in late 2019. What worries many epidemiologists around the world is that without sharing the data, signs of a new strain could be missed prompting a new wave of the virus to race across the globe. Countries like the U.S., Japan, India, South Korea, Taiwan, and Italy have announced testing requirements for passengers from China. The CCP has also been tight-lipped when it comes to the dissemination of their research on the COVID virus, prompting anger from many experts at the World Health Organization, who have stated that China's report on the origins of the virus were, quote, missing key pieces of data on how the pandemic began, end quote. The WHO has since called for a more in-depth investigation. Earlier this month, China rolled back many of its pandemic policies. Wall Street Journal's China Bureau Chief Jonathan Chang discusses the whiplash that many are feeling due to China's complete reversal on their approach to COVID in a matter of weeks. They've gone from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other, and there's a little bit of whiplash here because... This is what a lot of people have been waiting for. This was the moment, if you were a business owner, you own a restaurant, you are related to the tourist industry in any way, or the service sector, you were praying for this day, and then it all of a sudden came almost sooner than anyone had expected it. Cheng says that there are questions as to why China would relax restrictions before they were prepared to deal with potential hospitalizations. Yeah, you know, we just put out a story that really captures that second sentiment that you expressed there, which is that insofar as the censors in China are allowing criticism online, it's fingers pointing towards all these people who said we need to open up. And so there's a little bit of, we told you so, now look at this. On the other hand, there is a big question here of why China didn't do more to prepare. They had three years to do it. Um, It's not to say they were doing nothing, but vaccination rates could have been higher, especially among the elderly. And again, you visit any hospital right now, you go to the ERs or the ICUs, and you'll see, you'll wonder why more hasn't been done. And so it makes it makes a lot of people here think that their hand was forced, both economically, because things were just getting so bad, and epidemiologically, they just couldn't stop this particular strain, because this, this Omicron variant, as we all know, is much sneakier than its predecessors. 
Cheng goes on to confirm that China has stopped reporting their COVID cases. I'm in Beijing, and I can tell you that from early December when these measures first lifted, Beijing immediately became a ghost town because I think, anecdotally, because we don't have statistics, China stopped reporting statistics on daily infections and on deaths. Um, you know, I anecdotally, everyone will tell you that Beijing seemed to get it first, and everyone was wiped out. I don't know how I managed to be spared, but almost everyone I knew in the capital here was out for about a week to 10 days. This news comes on the heels of reports that China has sent warplanes into Taiwanese airspace, which has prompted the Taiwanese government to extend mandatory conscription of its citizens in order to prepare for a potential war with China. On Thursday, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper says that Taiwan is not prepared enough for a potential Chinese invasion, although he is optimistic that they will be ready should the CCP take action. Julie Hartman, host of the Timeless podcast on the Salem Podcast Network, says that this is the most aggressive China has been since declaring that Taiwan was part of the mainland. 71 warplanes were detected flying in or near Taiwan's airspace Sunday, which included 60 fighter jets, according to the Taiwan Defense Ministry. The People's Liberation Army of China says that they were conducting a strike drill in response to collusion between the United States and Taiwan. It's unclear what those collusions were. They seem like a reason China's just giving in order to survey the land for a possible invasion. Ever since Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party of China declared their control of Taiwan in 1949 after losing the Civil War, the United States, including most recently President Biden, has pledged to defend Taiwan against communist aggression from the mainland. But this, among other actions, proves that China is now in its most assertive stance against Taiwan in its history. Hartman says that part of the reason China is zeroing in on a potential invasion of Taiwan is that the small island country is the world's leading producer of semiconductor chips. At the 20th Communist Party Congress in October, President Xi Jinping urged China's military to, quote, focus all of its energy on fighting in preparation for war and affirmed China's right to take all necessary measures to seize Taiwan. They also added a part to their constitution which says that it is, quote, resolutely opposing and deterring Taiwan's independence. In addition to historical claims where the CCP says that Taiwan was once originally part of China and should be reunited with the mainland, Taiwan is especially important to China right now because the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company produces 92% of the world's advanced microchips. The timeless host sounds the alarm over the U.S.'s shrinking naval force. Even though we, the United States, have committed ourselves to defending Taiwan, the sad news is that we may not be as capable of doing so as we have been in the past. The Chinese military has surpassed us in having the largest and most powerful navy in the world. According to a report by the U.S. Congressional Research Service that was published on December 1st, sometime between 2015 and 2020, China's navy surpassed the U.S. Navy in the number of, quote, battle force ships, those that the Pentagon counts in determining the size of our navy and other navies. China now has 340 of these ships, and the report projects that it will grow to 400 by 2025 and 440 by 2030. 
We, by comparison, only have 294 Battle Force ships right now, with at least 37 scheduled for decommissioning. And this, that means that this number will actually shrink to 290 or 291 in 2025. Hartman voices her opinion on what the next steps China may take. Now, it's important to note that the likelihood that China will invade Taiwan is diminished by the misfortune and fierce resistance that Russia has met in invading Ukraine and the widespread condemnation and punitive sanctions that the West has imposed in response. But between invasion and no action lies a middle course of a Chinese naval blockade, a quarantine, of Taiwan, which probably has become more likely. Such a maritime blockade on the Chinese side of the median line might be coupled with a limited no-fly cordon around Taiwan, which could restrict or prohibit the entry of offensive combat aircrafts, but allow cargo planes and other civilian airliners in and out of the island. The U.S. State Department on Thursday approved a $180 million U.S. arms sale to Taiwan that would give Taipei an anti-tank system that automatically lays mines. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled that the pandemic-era provision, Title 42, would remain in place while legal filings surrounding the measure play out in the court system. In response, the Biden administration has erected a large tent in El Paso, Texas, where migrants will be able to stay while they wait to apply for asylum. U.S. border officials are working to put up a tent facility in El Paso, Texas, to house migrants awaiting a final decision on the future of Title 42. The Trump-era immigration policy allows the U.S. to rapidly expel migrants to prevent the spread of COVID-19. It was set to expire this week, but was upheld by the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Justices will hear arguments from a group of GOP-led states in favor of keeping the rule in February. Several cities along the U.S.-Mexico border have declared a state of emergency as they receive an influx of asylum seekers. To date, El Paso has spent $9.87 million on housing, feeding, and busing immigrants who illegally crossed the border from Mexico. 53,000 migrants were apprehended in Texas and New Mexico back in November, which was double the number in June, and 10 times higher than the 5,000 apprehended in November of 2019. Jonathan Turley, a professor at George Washington University Law School, says that the battle over Title 42 is an interesting one. The fight in the court is really fascinating. It's it's a fight between the ultimate pragmatist, Chief Justice John Roberts, and the ultimate purist, uh, which is Neil Gorsuch. You know, I testified at his confirmation hearing, and I told the Senate at that time uh, that Gorsuch is entirely motivated by principle. It's one of the things I respect about him. Uh, he views politics as outside his uh, domain. And what he said here was, we're playing politics, that... Uh, you know, the, the, the administration is really sort of incoherent as to what its position on the border is. Gorsuch agrees that the situation is really horrific. Uh, but, uh, you know, the administration has said that the COVID crisis was over. And then it says that it's not. And they say different things in different areas. But Gorsuch said, I don't see how we could sustain Title 42 just because we yep. think it's necessary to avoid this crisis. Turley says that the court ruling that Title 42 remains in place, for now, 
helps the Biden administration. I think that, you know, what, what John Roberts is doing here is that he's really sort of uh, falling back to his uh, um, his default position. He tends to be an incrementalist. He's kicking this down the road. He's going to let the court consider, his colleagues to consider uh, the merits of this question, and then they'll rule sometime after February. In many ways, this is the best possible scenario for the Biden administration. The president was able to tell his core base that he's fighting to end the remain in Mexico policy, when in reality, they really didn't want that to happen. Uh, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're facing a catastrophic situation on the border. It, it is, you know, you can say that the border is not open, uh, but when people see these images of hundreds of people walking across that border, uh, they're, they're going to believe their eyes and not what you're telling them. Uh, And I think Democrats are also beginning to voice their views now that there isn't a plan here uh, and we're really getting worse by the day. The law professor also says that Justice Gorsuch argues that immigration needs to be handled through the legislative branch, not the judicial. And that's what Gorsuch is saying. He's saying, look, solve the problem. Don't come to the Supreme Court and ask us to engage in a fiction. Solve the problem. If you have an unsecure border, I'm putting words in his mouth, but essentially secure it, work the problem within Congress, not the courts. And I think that's the thrust of his uh, his opposition. Things will soon be easier for drug smugglers at the southern border. Daybreak Insider's Tasha Stevens has the details on this story. While the U.S. government provides millions of dollars for Ukrainian defense, there is no plan to replace the RC-26 spy aircraft in the U.S., and the Air Force is speeding up efforts to dismantle the program. National Guard pilots are being told to scrap the aircraft earlier than expected, even though the planes are used to monitor fentanyl smuggling across the U.S.-Mexico border. The government says there's no funding to support the program. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, nearly 15,000 pounds of fentanyl was confiscated at the southern border this past year. Tasha Stevens reporting. On Thursday, a judge in Illinois has ruled that part of the controversial Safety Act, which ends cash bail, is unconstitutional. An Illinois judge has ruled a portion of the state's new law, getting rid of cash bail, is unconstitutional. The Safety Act goes into effect in the new year, with Illinois soon becoming the first state in the entire country to eliminate cash bail. The portion ruled unconstitutional would have allowed judges to decide if a defendant does not pose a public safety risk, they could be released without posting cash bail. 65 state attorneys have challenged this new law, but it will still go into effect for the rest of the counties not included in the lawsuit. Illinois Republicans like State Representative Jim Durkin were quick to praise the court ruling is a victory for the citizens of Illinois and specifically victims of crime and the men and women of law enforcement. We warned about the consequences of the legislation from the beginning. The law aims to change parts of the Illinois justice system with regard to ending cash bail, limiting how judges determine whether defendants are flight risks, and allowing defendants under electronic monitoring to leave home for 48 hours before they can be charged with escape. Orland Park Mayor Keith Peacock explains the parts of the Safety Act he finds the most dangerous. I think the things that stand out as being you know, most egregious and most dangerous right out of the gate are um, the no cash bail. They've essentially said that judges have two options. They can either hold someone indefinitely 
or they cannot hold someone, but they can only hold people for uh, like seven different types of offenses. So it's murder and class X felonies, essentially. So things like second degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, arson, uh, threatening a public official, aggravated discharge of a weapon. Those are things that are not um, that, that are not part of those categories, so they cannot be held unless a judge finds a specific um, that they're, they're a wolf, that they're a flight risk, but you can't use any past history of not showing up. As, so how can you possibly prove that they're a future flight risk? Pika also points out that according to the Safety Act, trespassers are now only issued a citation and can remain on your property. The other thing that is it, it's it's talked about, but is buried in here is that trespassing was lowered to a class B misdemeanor from a class A misdemeanor and class B and C misdemeanors were rewritten to say that um, officers shall issue a citation, which in legal terms shall is a really important word. It means that they must issue a citation means they can't put a hand on somebody. So in other words, they can't remove a trespasser from someone's property. So now they get to stay on that property in that business on your, on your, property at at your house, etc. Following the ruling, Pritzker released a statement insisting that the ruling is a setback. Quote, today's ruling is a setback for the principles we fought to protect through the passage of the Safety Act. The General Assembly and advocates work to replace an antiquated criminal justice system with a system rooted in equity and fairness. We cannot and should not defend a system that fails to keep people safe by allowing those who are a threat to their community the ability to simply buy their way out of jail. I thank the Attorney General for his work on this case and look forward to the Illinois Supreme Court taking up the appeal as soon as possible. End quote. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is under fire from both parties due to what some are calling a mishandling of airline issues that has led to tens of thousands of Americans stranded at airports across the nation. Travel chaos continues for another day as Southwest cancels more than 2,300 flights this morning. And we're learning Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was warned a meltdown like this was bound to happen. Earlier this year, Buttigieg stated that holiday travel would be rather smooth. We'll be sorted in time for the holidays. I think it's going to get better by the holidays. We're really pressing the airlines to deliver better service. However, as this Southwest passenger can tell you, that simply is not the case. If they cancel this flight here, we're stuck here another day. So now i got to hopefully find another hotel, pay for more food, more cabs, you know, just a lot of other things, um, pay for people to keep watching our house for longer. On Wednesday, Southwest Airlines canceled more than 2,500 flights and plans to cancel more flights in the coming days. This news comes as reports surfaced on Thursday that Buttigieg may have been warned about impending issues with airlines canceling flights and ignored them. Peter Ducey of Fox News says that questions are growing regarding how the Department of Transportation could drop the ball. Well, it's interesting this morning because the airlines are already one of the most regulated industries in the country. So there are these new questions about why it is the feds are being so reactive to the Southwest meltdown and why they weren't more proactive. Ducey reads part of the letter sent from New York Attorney General Letitia James, who wrote to Buttigieg, to warn him about problems she was seeing with airline travel during the holidays. So the numbers just are not getting much better. Another 2,300 Southwest flights straight up canceled. 
New York's attorney general may have seen this coming before the feds did. Letitia James wrote to Pete Buttigieg, I write out of concern for the deeply troubling and escalating pattern of airlines delaying and canceling flights over the past several months, particularly over holiday weekends. That was in August. And then Buttigieg shrugged off concerns a month later in September. Ducey goes on to say that it's unclear if Southwest's customers will forgive the company. Southwest is apologetic, but it's unclear this morning how much uh, contrite tweet is providing comfort to someone who is sleeping on the floor of an airport. The number of people seeking unemployment benefits rose modestly last week. Daybreak Insider's Jeremy House takes a look at the numbers. The Labor Department says applications for unemployment aid for the week ending December 24th climbed by 9,000 to 225,000. It's the latest sign that the labor market remains strong despite the Federal Reserve's efforts to cool the economy and hiring. Should the Fed's rate hikes cause a recession, as many economists fear, a jump in layoffs and unemployment claims would be an early sign. Brazilian soccer legend Pele, considered by many to be the greatest soccer player in history, has died. Daybreak Insider's Kieran Chamas has more on the passing of the soccer legend. The soccer legend had been undergoing treatment for colon cancer since 2021. His agent, Joe Fraga, confirmed his death. Pelé won three World Cups with Brazil and spent nearly two decades enchanting fans and dazzling opponents as the game's most prolific scorer, with Brazilian club Santos and the Brazilian national team. Widely regarded as one of soccer's greatest players, Pelé orchestrated a fast, fluid style that revolutionised the sport, a samba-like flair that personified his country's elegance on the field. I'm Karen Chamas. And finally, Pope Benedict XVI is getting a lot of prayers sent his way as reports of his failing health have come to light. The Vatican is saying that former Pope Benedict is, quote, absolutely lucid and conscious, end quote. They're also saying that he slept well, but that his condition remains serious. Dr. Ulrich Lehner of the University of Notre Dame discusses the impact of Pope Benedict's resignation. Well, he resigned uh, at an age that, um, you know, um, most of us probably would want to be retired at 85. Uh, I think he realized that he didn't have the strength anymore to hold the curia together, to hold all the Vatican offices together. And I think he also remembered that under his predecessor, John Paul II, especially during his last years of uh, very severe Parkinson illness, um, people that he trusted had run the Vatican or the church more uh, than it was actually probably good for the for the rest of the church, certain groups um, that the previous pope had trusted. And so I think he wanted to spare the church perhaps that scenario, um, having um, a new uh, pope with more energy who can appoint the leaders and uh, the um, advisors that he actually wants and trusts. Lehner highlights the impact of Pope Benedict's steps against sex abuse in the church. Well, as a, a cardinal, as, a head, as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, he was already concerned with uh, a number of those cases. And for years, he had pushed John Paul II to, um, for example, um, punish and prosecute uh, Gabriel Marcel, the founder of the Legionaries of Christ. Uh, John Paul II pushed back because, you know, he didn't feel that these accusations would be correct. 
uh, coming from a, a country, as if you remember, communist Poland, where the accusation um, of um, pedophilia and um, sexual missteps was a, a common, uh, commonly used by the communist authorities to discredit uh, the clergy. Um, however, uh, once he became pope, he very strictly and swiftly uh, took steps, for example, against Marcel and against others. He was the one who also um, uh, put Cardinal McCarrick um, under uh, restrictions and tried to uh, address, as the first pope in history, really the abuse crisis. Benedict asked forgiveness for any grievous faults in his handling of cases, but denied any personal or specific wrongdoing. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and Townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Jim Bartow. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.